Hello and welcome to Happy Place, the podcast where I, Fern Cotton, meet people who have lived extraordinary lives and dealt with some pretty heavy situations. This week is no exception as we meet journalist and writer Paul Nabell. Knowing what I now know about depression, especially that kind of depression that begins in childhood, there were so many questions I should have asked him about it, and I didn't. A word of warning, as we occasionally do on this series, there's a discussion of suicide, and in this case, what happened to the people caught in its aftermath. If that's something that's not going to help you at this time, feel free to pause the show and come back to it when you're in a better place. Okay, you're still with me. Porna is a wonderful, inspiring woman, and I can't wait to introduce you to her. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And now, here's the show. So, Porna, I'm so happy and thrilled that you're in my house right now. Thank you so much for having me. And that I get to look in your gorgeous eyes for an hour. <laughs> By the way, like, you can't see what's going on right now, but Porna has the most extraordinary eyes ever in Thanks. the world. I made them myself. I know. When I first met you, I was like, blatantly contacts. And you're like, actually, no, they're not. <laughs> I'm really glad that you didn't share that with me at the time. <laughs> well, I was mesmerised. I want to talk about when I first met you, which was probably... It was maybe about a year and a half ago, I'm estimating. I would say it Longer? was just Two? before Calm came out. Okay, so about, yeah, about a year and a half ago. Yeah. And all I knew about you at this point, well, I didn't know very much at all, like you do when you go into mm. new situations. I knew that you were big at Huffington Post. You're an editor, you're extremely smart. I'm instantly coming into that feeling quite intimidated and, oh my God, and she's got amazing eyes. Oh my God, everything's brilliant about this woman. She's perfect. You're interviewing me about depression, anxiety and stuff. And it was thoroughly nerve-wracking. And then I walked away thinking that was very nice and Paula was lovely and not as scary as I imagined. And then, a little after that, I got your beautiful book that I can't stop telling everyone about, Chasing the Rainbow, and read your story. And it obviously took me aback hugely. And it was one of those moments where you go, God, you assume so much about someone from meeting them once. And you see someone who's got a brilliant job and who looks gorgeous and is very confident at their job. And you don't even think about what their life's been like or what they might have been through. But for those people that haven't read your book or don't know much about it, can you... It's hard to summarise, but can you tell us roughly what, what story you're telling in that book? Yeah, so um, Chase the Rainbow is a memoir, um, but it's also, there's a little bit of journalism in there because I'm a journalist. Um, and it's about my life um, with my husband, Rob. And when I tell people that I've written a memoir, you know, and they don't know who I am or what the story is, they laugh and they're like, oh, ho, 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 you're so young. You know, how could you have written a memoir? And then I tell them and then their face just kind of drops. But it's basically my husband um, passed away three years ago from suicide. And he struggled with um, chronic depression. So he'd had this depression since he was a kid. And about two and a half years into our marriage, and, and, you know, up until that point, he hadn't really been that depressed. So I didn't really know what it was like to be with someone, uh, you know, who had full on depression. Um, But about two and a half years into being married, I just thought, you know, something's just not right here. And he then revealed to me that in addition to having depression, he also had a full blown addiction to heroin, which um, he had tried to keep a secret from me because he tried to get clean before I found out what was going on because he was so sure that, you know, if I knew the truth, I would leave him, which I didn't at that point and helped him with recovery. So at that point, I had no clue about what depression was. I mean, as far as I knew, no one in my family had it. I mean, of course, 
looking back on it now, someone in my family must have had depression, but you know, we didn't really talk about it. And the only reference point I had was a female friend of mine who went through surgery, um, you know, minor surgery, but what ended up happening was she got depressed and um, eventually went on medication and then was fine. Like it didn't recur um, after that. And I was just like, okay, well she had it, but you know, she got over it. That's the phrase that I would use, which I would never use now about depression. But, you know, she got over it. So he's telling me that he has depression, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be anything major. So it's fine. And also it was his mannerism of how he spoke about it. You know, he wasn't flippant, but he was very confident about it. So I thought, okay, he obviously is telling me about this thing that he's been dealing with, but he seems to have it perfectly in hand. So, you know, there's nothing really for me to worry about. And knowing what I now know about depression, Um, especially uh, that kind of depression that begins in childhood Um, there were so many questions I should have asked him about it and I didn't well you know this I guess is something that luckily is being talked about so much more because of brilliant books like yours and I guess especially men hearing more about the fact that talking is a great thing to do do you think that Rob did struggle to express himself to other people around him and and reach out for help perhaps as well hugely because he didn't really see a psychiatrist like a proper psychiatrist who could tailor medication for him until he was about 36 and he died when he was 39 there was a lot going on there so you know when he was a lot younger the treatments that you have for depression were a lot they were a lot cruder less was known about it but for sure he definitely struggled with the idea of normality so for him you know, having depression meant that he wasn't normal and he desperately, desperately wanted to be normal. So he expended huge amounts of energy trying to maintain this facade of normality. So, for example, when we got married, you know, what should have happened was we should have gotten married with the full understanding of what depression was like for him and to know that when he was depressed, this is what we would do as a couple, etc., etc. But half of the time he was so invested in you know not making me feel like depression affected our relationship or would affect me that it came at great personal cost to him Mm, mm. so I don't think that that really worked for him and of course you know for anyone experiencing depression the circle around your people you love are affected whatever you know even if you do have a plan you know it's still going to be detrimental in ways there's still going to be challenges you have to overcome when Rob was having a tough time and he was in a dark place, how how did you cope with that personally? Because it is so much for you to take, you know, it's a huge responsibility for you because you love that person and you don't want to see them like it. You feel, I'm imagining, very hopeless in that situation. But you've also got to carry on in your life and you have friends, job, passions, love. You know, how did you did you cope with that? So I'm a avid diary keeper. So, um, you know, there's a lot that I didn't realize until I revisited those diaries and read how I felt during that time. Because when you are dealing with someone who's really depressed, as I was with Rob, you know, there's a huge amount of physical energy, for example, that's expended because you're the one doing the supermarket shop, you're the one making sure that things are afloat. So you're basically doing the jobs of two people, even, you know, stuff like cleaning the house. Um, And from an emotional point of view, you know, your emotions kind of get shunted to the back, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. And so for me, I remember the physical stuff. So I remember having to go to the shop, but the emotional stuff I didn't realize until I read this entry where I just said, you know, um, I know that when you are married to someone, you are supposed to support them in sickness and in health. And absolutely, that's what I'm going to do with Rob. But it is really hard and it's really getting me down and nothing I do seems to make a difference. And that speaks to such a naivety because, of course, it's an illness. You know, what I can do, what I did as a partner was to support him, not to make him feel crappy about not being able to, you know, get out of bed or do this and that. But it still affected me um, you know, hugely as a person. And also there was an idea of what I felt couples should do together. So, you know, something as simple as go out on a Saturday afternoon and get coffee, you know. And for a lot of the time when Rob especially was ill, you know, he just wouldn't be out of bed. Like he wouldn't be able to get up. So we didn't necessarily do stuff like that for a big chunk of our relationship when he was ill. And I have to say, um, for me... um, It was enormous 
at the time, but I was just trying to sort of pedal, you know, put one foot in front of the other yeah. and get through it. So I don't think there was a day when I just felt completely overwhelmed by it. I think there was just a low level feeling of this is really hard and I have to hope that one day, um, you know, it's going to lift. And when I realized that it wasn't really lifting and this wasn't something that was just going to go away overnight, um, I started to reclaim certain bits of my life. So for example, I used to stay at home a lot with Rob because I just felt quite guilty going out. And I was like, you know, if he's feeling terrible, I don't really want to go out. But I was just like, you know, I need to go out because I need to reconnect with my friends. I need to do the things that I love doing because that's what's going to nurture me. And also Rob, you know, hugely was supportive of that. He just said, look, I feel like I'm ruining your life and I really want you to be able to to just go out and get back out there and have a good time. Um, but it was always hard maintaining that balance of, you know, going out and knowing in the back of my head that he was at home on his own. Well, of course, because it's that's also massively alienating for you because as you said, everyone by default compares their situation to others you know it's our way of working out how we fit into society and and where and how we fit into our friendship circles and and I think a lot of us do that we go oh well that couple always do this or that family do this and and that can be very alienating because if you don't know anyone else experiencing what you're going through can you say anything did you talk to friends about it can you can you admit those feelings is there then guilt on top of that that you're telling other people Rob's situation you know how did you communicate that to others Well, for a big part of our lives was that we didn't. Mm. So it's really, um, you know, it's really interesting when you look at it now. And and when I consider how much of my life is in that book and how much was out there, I mean, this is stuff I could never have spoken about when he was alive um, because I just felt it was so taboo. It was so personal. Mm. There were so many emotions that I was struggling with in terms of, I'm in this relationship with the love of my life, but it doesn't look like the relationships of other people. And, um, you know, it's really interesting of what you what you said when you first met me, because that's not how I feel inside at all. And, um, <laughs> and if anything, I was intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, I think, what I have learned the hard way um, is that you do not know what's going on in someone else's life. So, for example, you know, all of those days and months and hours that I spent when I was with Rob looking at other people's relationships and I would I would definitely say I was envious not because we weren't in a loving relationship but I was envious of the normality because I that's what I had signed yeah. up for I had signed up for boring consistency of being with my best mate mm. for however long that was going to be and and everyone else just seemed to have it together and you know everyone else was having kids or everyone else was doing this and that or buying a house and I just kind of looked at where we were at and I just thought you know there is we're nowhere near that we're nowhere near whatever picture it is that I have in my head of how I thought our marriage was going to be. And the irony, of course, is now that I look back on it, you know, because of what I speak about, people tell me like a hell of a lot of stuff that they wouldn't tell other people. And and now I'm just thinking, you know, I will bet for every single person that they've told about what's going on, let's say someone like me, there's about 20 people in their lives who don't know that that's what's happening. Who's looking at, you know, the amazing townhouse that they have Mm -hmm. or oh, they've just had, you know, their third kid and they've had this amazing first birthday party. And part of me, I hope this isn't cynical, but part of me is like, I'm really happy for them, but I know that what I'm seeing is not the full story. It never is. No. I don't think, I don't think you're being cynical at all. We're, well, we're in the age of comparisons, yeah. right? Good things happen to everyone. Bad things happen to everyone. Mm. It's just that, unfortunately, when you're, when you're not necessarily in the best place, you look at all the good yeah. things that are happening to other people mm-hmm. and you use that as this um, comparison point to where you currently are and how you emotionally are. I do it all the time. Yeah. And it's just, unfortunately, I mean, is there a cure to it? I don't know. I just think it's human nature. It's because we know the rules. We know it's a fantasy. It's not like we're going, oh, but I believe it all. (laughs) We know, but we still, by default, and it is like you say, when you're having a bad day, when you're Mm. already feeling vulnerable, weak, that you will probably search those things out. And if it wasn't Instagram, we'd be doing it in some other way, more than likely. (laughs) So you've talked so brilliantly already about dealing with that almighty struggle that was put upon you and 
and not only depression, but also you're dealing with addiction as well. And I'll be honest with you, Paula, I have dated a lot of addicts and it's definitely been a reoccurring lesson for me. And my husband now, and he's very open about this, is sober and clean and very dedicated to that. And, you know, even that takes a lot of consideration and time. But, you know, we're in a a very good place to everything. But, you know, from as far back as I can remember with boyfriends, it's been very turbulent in that area. And the one thing, not now at this point in life, but certainly growing up, when that destructive behavior was in my stratosphere, that in turn would usually lead me down a road of self-destruction and not with drugs and alcohol. It's That's never been a problem for me, thankfully. Um, but in many other ways, I've either not looked after myself physically, haven't been eating properly, have been sleeping well, going out a lot, hanging out with people that I knew weren't necessarily good for me. And it was this sort of weird mirror effect in a relationship where I would go off in my own self-destructive cyclone over here whilst they did theirs there because I was trying to help, knew I couldn't, and then spinning off in this direction. Um, Did you ever feel that you had tendencies to go off and be destructive in your own way or was it very important that you kept yourself very together to be as strong as you could for Rob? So definitely was the latter. So I also have never had um, a problem with alcohol or drugs. I mean, I wasn't great in my 20s around alcohol, I would say, but let's face it, who is? No, no, I love drinking. Don't (laughs) get me wrong, I just didn't tip into problematic Exactly. It was was never, I'm never and have never been the person that's like, oh, it's 11am, you know, I'm going to start drinking then or anything like that. And it's, and it's just not in me. So when I was trying to help Rob through his recovery and all of the chaos, as you know, that addiction brings um, around that, um, what it made me become was incredibly, um, I I don't want to use the word controlling because that insinuates that I was controlling him, but it's more like I needed to be in control Mm. of everything. And when something happened, which then threw that off course, so not necessarily even to do with Rob, like actually more often than not, it was just complete random stuff. Um, I, the overreaction on my part was just incredible. And I think what happened was I used to go to a support group because I needed a space where um, I could talk about Rob being an addict and how I felt about that and so on in a space where it didn't feel like I was being judged and also just to kind of get advice from people that were Mm. going through something similar. And I saw that on all of their faces in terms of, so the fact that they were going to a support group means that they weren't self-medicating themselves, right? But all of them, um, you know, had very heightened sense of anxiety around things that they really probably shouldn't have had um, and definitely needed to control certain situations. So a classic example was um, I went to Spain with my best friend and my sister and they will not thank me for saying this, but um, they were both in the car and I was kind of like watching them try to reverse the car. And basically one of them, who shall remain nameless, drove on some steps. So the car was basically stuck on um, these steps and and we were like, oh, my God, we're in Cadiz. What are we going to do? We're going to have to get a tow truck. And they were completely fine about it. I was completely flipping out. And then afterwards, you know, they said, look, like, you know, you just kind of, the way you reacted to that, it, it actually wasn't that bad. You know, we were going to get it sorted out in the end. And that's a really silly example, but it is an example of how something that actually really didn't deserve the reaction that it it ended up getting. But it was because I was so stretched thin yeah. across other areas when it came to, you know, Rob's unpredictability and is he going to pick up the phone and has he relapsed and is he going to be okay and how is his recovery going? I think yeah. I think that's so um, prevalent for people in many ways if they've even had a turbulent childhood and then they're still trying to sort of relinquish control later on in life. It can be small moments that tip you over into this abyss and you just feel like it can be a tiny thing like you say but you just want things to be in line and in control. I guess to feel safe, secure, there's a lack of that going on. Safety is a huge thing. I mean, so I talked to Rob about this, about the the idea of safety. And I just said, look, you know, in our relationship, um, I love you so much. And obviously you make me feel safe. But I said it's up to a point because um, when you are actively using drugs or alcohol, 
I don't really know what's going to happen because I'm not dealing with, you know, someone else who doesn't have a problem mm. with this kind of stuff. I'm dealing with someone who does have a problem and who crucially doesn't have an off switch when it comes to that kind of stuff. So um, what ended up happening was that my home was starting to not feel safe. And by that, I mean, you know, for me, my home and definitely, you know, present day, um, I, I went to great lengths to make it feel like this is it's safe, it's warm, it's it's a haven from everything else outside. And I would just remember some days, you know, coming home, like after a really long, um, you know, very full on day at work. And my job at that time was very full on. Um, and I'd kind of go into the house and I was just like, I don't know what's going to be waiting for mm. me inside. You know, I don't know whether is Rob going to be here? Like, will he still be asleep? Like, what will be going on with him? And more often than not, it was kind of OK. And we'd make dinner and it would be perfectly normal. But I just feel that in a relationship, you, sh- you shouldn't have to be asking yourself that question, like, what is going to be waiting for me on the other side of the door? And unfortunately, when you are dating an addict, as you know, that is part of your day-to-day reality. And becomes normal when it yeah, shouldn't. Becomes, exactly. You know, you, yeah. you go, well, this is absolutely what I feel like when I walk in the door, and this is what I expect. And and I guess through patterns of behaviour and time, you forget that it would be acceptable and wonderful for it to be anything other than that so you just get into the habit of it and and that's you know it's a huge shame and and puts a lot of strain on on the partner of course I mean something that you talk about a lot in the book obviously and so brilliantly I'm imagining this was excruciatingly difficult to write about was Rob's suicide when that happened Obviously, there's so much shock and trauma around that. Was there any part of you that had expected that to happen? In truth, not really. Mm. I mean, when I look at his history, so he had attempted suicide before um, and had failed. And um, in the book, uh, and this was one of the hardest things to write, um, was that just before he left for New Zealand, which is where he took his own life, he had a stay at the Priory. And I remember a few days before he was going to go, this was his second stay in the Priory. And I remember a couple of days before, you know, I had come home and like his voice was like really hoarse. And I remember just like, I actually made fun of it. I was like, why are you talking like a lady? Like what's happened to your voice? Because I'd had tonsillitis before and I was like, oh, maybe he's coming down with that. And he was like, oh no, I think I'm just coming down with something or whatever. Um, and his mum kind of voiced some concern, you know, around like, had he made an attempt on his life before going into the Priory? And I just was like, Prue, you know, no way. I mean, like, he seems really invested in, you know, his um, health and his care. And and at that point, what had happened was, as a consequence of his constant relapse, I had asked him for a separation because I had just gotten to that point where, I needed to have some space from him and I needed I needed him crucially to do his recovery for him not because he was worried about losing me or anything like that so I just needed some time away from him um and then when I looked at the notes you know all of the doctor's notes um it had said that he had come into the priory having um made an attempt on his life and how that felt I mean I just felt like someone had punched me in the stomach because I had come home that day like I had made a joke about it and then we had dinner like we had dinner like a, he had dinner and conversation with me you know as if we were a normal couple and that I I don't think I will ever get over the shock of that mm. but I think he was in New Zealand for about three months and he had engaged with the detox program there so it's a lot easier to engage with detox programs there than it is um, in the UK because we have all sorts of really weird restrictions around someone engaging in help which still makes me so angry Mm. but they'd accepted him into this program and um the day the first day that he had gone to this program that was so he sort of you know kissed his mum and dad goodbye um you know they said that he seemed really calm really happy and then things just kind of snowboard after that you know so it would have been their evening um our morning because of the time difference and I just got this really weird set of text messages from him and um And then we kind of were having this, you know, quite terse exchange because I just I couldn't understand what he was saying to me. But he was basically trying to say that he couldn't really, you know, do this anymore. 
but the language that he was using it, it it wasn't clear like it was very vague and i just and we he'd used language like that before and you know so i just said i just don't understand and you know i you're making me really worried what's going on and then he just kind of went missing he said you know i let me just say goodbye to my mum and dad in peace and you know and i'm sorry and then just kind of went missing and then um we exchanged phone calls you know me and the family and so on and i was so sure i just said you know what I bet you any money he is going to turn up. He's just going to be really sheepish. Like maybe he's been drinking. Um, But I said, like, honestly, don't. And in my heart of hearts, even though I was concerned that he wasn't in contact with us, I was so sure he was going to turn up. Because also the alternative, I could not think about the alternative. My brain could not go there. And then when it had been about 12 hours, um, you know, and my mum-in-law called me and I knew what the news was because she was crying on the phone. Um, but like it wasn't until she actually said the words um, that I thought, oh, my God, like, you know, the nightmare is real. This has happened. And I even I even remember saying to her, you know, are you sure it's not someone else? Mm. And now I feel so guilty for saying that because, I mean, who on earth would wish this on someone else but I was like maybe maybe it's not him like maybe if they haven't identified him it's not him but of course it was him my gosh you I mean the levels of shock that you're going through you can't compare them to anything that is just the absolute what even with a history like Rob's you of course you don't want to think that's an option or think that's going to be a reality you know it's just the unimaginable the unimaginable how do you start to believe that you're going to have a good life and a future after such trauma? I think that the immediate um, six months is literally like getting up, brushing your teeth, um, going to work and so on. And some people don't make it to work in that time. Um, You know, some people take six months to a year off. I went back fairly quickly about three weeks after um, because I needed to work and I could not imagine anything worse than just sitting at home, you know, with the curtains closed. But there was a point um, when I just thought, okay, so what does this mean? I'm grieving for Rob, but what does this mean for my life? Because I could let this completely break my life and shatter it or I can look at what I need to do to be able to heal and recover from it. And it's not like I I coherently had those thoughts, you know, one day. I think this was just a gradual understanding that one life was already lost and I couldn't let my life be lost in it as well because it's actually quite a common thing that ends up happening. Mm. And the only thing that I could do to just maintain my sanity um, was to write. And so it was to write and articulate, you know, what I was thinking and um, how I felt about Rob, because especially a suicide is, it's such a complex death. There are so many different types of emotions in addition to loss and sadness, um, you know, factoring in guilt, um, responsibility, all of those types of things. Um, so I started writing and, and sifting things from that about what I needed in my life to, to make myself feel whole again. And I think a really big part of that was that it was to embrace the fact that the person that I was when I was with Rob was no longer here, you know, that that person had unfortunately dissipated. But what I could do was to take the best parts of who I was as a person when I was with him and to build on that. And so for me, a big part of that was empathy and compassion and understanding of just how big and how complicated life was. And to be able to, I'm not saying like, you know, sit down and talk to people about their problems, but to be the sounding board or to be the counterpoint that could just give a bigger perspective than what the average person would. And to be able to help other people to heal as well, I found incredibly healing for myself. Um, I mean, I still don't know what I'm going to do about certain aspects of my life, but the writing um, for me was um, important because it told people things some like something that they didn't know about so for example um you know we don't necessarily talk hugely about suicide i mean we're getting better in terms of talking about mental health and um and addiction and so on but 
I, I felt that people just didn't know how to handle me because they didn't know what a suicide death does to a person. So I thought, okay, right, I can explain that and um, and thereby make your understanding of it, you know, bigger. But also just, you know, there are so many partners and spouses who are dealing with someone or who are with someone that they love very much who has problems with mental health um, for whom there's not a huge amount that articulates that experience and so I just thought actually I'd really also want to be able to be the arm around the shoulder for someone that just might be going through that Mm. and then the sort of final thing to that was around someone who might be struggling with their mental health just to kind of say you know I kind of get it like we get it there are people amongst us who understand and who aren't expecting you to be fixed because there is no such thing as a fix when it comes to mental health Um, but all of those things and doing all of those things um helped I think to piece me back together again but also just gave me this goal um, of what I wanted to strive towards and who I wanted to be as a person. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How important do you think properly grieving is, you know, versus suppressing or just marching through life? Do you have to surrender to it or is it important to at some point stop that process and feel somewhat healed if that's possible and continue in a new direction? So I think with grief, I never really had any experience of it. I mean, my grandparents um, are all deceased and, um, you know, one of them I'd never met and the other three um, sort of died you know, because of things related to old age. And we miss them dearly, but it just wasn't the same kind of grief at all. Well, I guess you know, same here, my grandparents were like, but you know it's going to happen. Yeah, There's a underlying awareness that you prepare for that. And, Mm. and, but, but when it is a partner, God forbid, a child, you know, anyone. A shocking death. A shocking death. Yeah. Yeah. That's world crumbling. Everything shakes to its core, you know, life changed forever. Yeah, so that kind of grief, um, I think people are generally quite bad at dealing with grief. So it wasn't something that really I learned from anyone. Um, What I think saved me um, and just placed me, you know, weirdly in good stead to be able to deal with something like this was before Rob passed away, um, a really big line of work that I was in that I felt passionately about was around well-being. So it was around things like, um, you know, how you fortify your own mind. So whether that's through making sure that you're getting enough sleep, you know, doing the right practices around that. Um, also was a huge fan of meditation, but just basically that checking in with yourself as a person. So I had already begun practices around that. And, um, you know, just things like knowing that I needed to take myself off from time to time and go for a run or to be by myself or um, just learning how to say no to people, um, which is an incredibly important, empowering thing if mm. you can master it. So I think... Um, with dealing with that kind of grief I just knew and I don't really know how I knew this but I knew that there wasn't going to be a shortcut to this I knew that it was intense at times it was absolutely awful mainly because you weren't really feeling like one emotion at one point you know one minute you would be okay the next minute you would just be really really sad the next minute I'd be so angry you know my face would just heat up and it's just getting accustomed to how quickly those emotions change. I mean, that in itself is hugely exhausting. So I think what I decided to do was I just thought, you know what, I'm going to have to really, really prioritize me. And and I don't say that in a selfish way. It's just like being aware of things that I was and was not capable of. So for example, you know, on a day at work, um, if I could not go into the office, I was not going to be going into the office. Celebrations were a big one. So people's birthdays or, you know, Um, first kids birthday parties or weddings especially I think I didn't go to weddings for the first two years after Rob passed away I mean don't get me wrong there were things that people said that were helpful for example um, 
you know, my best mate was like, I was still staying in the flat that Rob and I had lived in. And basically things were kind of, I put his stuff in the loft, but things were pretty much how he'd left them. So paintings that he'd put up on the wall. And I was dithering about moving house. And I think my best mate just said very gently, you know, I think you might want to, I think you might want to move out. She didn't say you should move out. Um, and it kind of sank in and I thought about it, mulled it over. And I thought, actually, you know what? She's right. I think I'm just holding on to this. And so suggestions like that are helpful. But I think when I really totally went apeshit was when someone suggested that it was time for me to move on. And I just was like, firstly, this hasn't happened to you. Like no. your spouse is still alive and kicking yeah. and sitting next to you on the sofa. You have, you have no right yeah. to, to say something. Like yeah. That. And it's just like, I understand with my compassion hat on, I understand the impetus for it. I understand they're saying that because they don't want to see me in so much pain. And they think that by dribbling out this, you know, seemingly helpful nugget of information, I'm somehow going to go, oh yeah, you know what? I didn't think about that. Maybe yeah. I should move Great on. Idea. Yeah. But also, is it because people don't understand that, you know, I'm not saying grieving's a great thing, yay, but it's an important thing and it's something to be honoured rather than, come on, speed this up, get over it. It's something that you do have to honour. Yeah, and I think that also being consciously aware of like markers like that, of where you are this year, the next year, the following year, is really important because it helps you to measure your grief. So, for example... I'm approaching um, in a couple of weeks um, Rob's death anniversary. Now, the first year, I felt it coming uh, about two to three months before the actual date itself. The second year, it was about a month. We're in the third year. I've probably felt it coming maybe about three weeks to two weeks. So that time is lessening. But there's nothing I can really do to, you know, hasten the process it's going to kind of happen at its own point but I think what people when they don't understand grief I think that what they're wondering about is you know are you wallowing in your grief and it's a bit unkind it's an unkind word to use and I definitely would say there are dangers of wallowing in your grief but sometimes you know what you just need to wallow but the difference is give yourself a day Um, you don't maybe talk to anyone you be kind to yourself at home. But that next day, it's all about the next day. You have to get up mm. the next day and go out there. Otherwise, that ends up becoming this rolling pattern of wanting to disengage from the world. And trust me, I've been there and it's a dark and horrible place to be in. How do you begin to, I guess, trust the unknown? Because I was having this conversation just last week with a relative of mine who lost a brother very, very young. And... You know, she's been through a huge grieving process and and again, she's made that decision that she's going to honour him and his life and, you know, do all the things that she knows he would have wanted her to do. And, and that's, a, you know, something that she's learned in a very awful way. But also the repercussions of that shock have been an anxiety that, she hasn't quite learned to live with yet and one that she definitely struggles and manifests in different ways but having trust that something awful isn't on the horizon constantly how do you begin to sort of mitigate those those feelings that I'm sure are unavoidable so for me therapy was a huge part of how I mitigated some of the you know the anxiety or not knowing and um, because that anxiety also spills out into anger so um, and and actually unfair anger so I found myself very angry at people who were completely naturally as they should be moving on with their own lives because I was not there yet and I was locked in this grief and I knew that I would not feel anything resembling normality for a while. So having a sort of a neutral person who you can talk to about this, who can basically restore a sense of perspective um, that isn't, you know, wrapped up in concern for me was really important. Um, But I think in terms of the unknown, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this recently. So I'm writing um, another book, which is a sort of broader look around... um, you know, finding meaning in your life and also direction is that there a lot of what you're grieving or that you're anxious about is um, is the lack of the future that you have with this person that you've lost. And so, you know, I was kind of um, in this space 
quite a negative space where I was just like, you know, but if only this hadn't happened, then my life would have been completely different. And actually what I am yearning for is the best version of something that never happened, even when he was around. So I am yearning for the perfect, um, you know, um, the, the, Sunday afternoon with our kids hanging out having dinner and it's like but we may ne- we didn't necessarily have that in our real life so what I am kind of trying to strive towards is something that may never have happened anyway so so for me once I just realized that I thought okay so what is it that I actually do want from my life and what are the things that I don't have to have an answer around so I find it really helpful to write things down mm. and learning how to let go of the stuff that you don't have an answer around just yet um I find that that is the best way to just release that anxiety and kind of let it let it go but also you know when I'm if I notice that my brain is like churning so especially with anxiety you know you've got this like one thought and it's just like you're chewing on it like a dog with a bone and if I notice I've been doing that you know for more than five minutes um I just put a timer on my phone for 10 minutes and I just breathe through it. And then by the end of it, it just, I don't, it works for me anyway. I just feel so much lighter around it. That's so brilliant because it is sitting with that feeling rather than, oh, I I need to do something to get rid of it. I need to put it on someone else or buy something or eat something. It's actually sitting with that discomfort. Because the thing is, none of us know what's happening in the next 10 seconds even. Like absolutely none of us do. But we all weirdly slip into this sort of faux, you know, thought process that it's all very linear. And, you know, even like tomorrow, I know that in my diary, I'm doing this, this and this. So that will all happen. And then that's gonna happen. And then I hope that in a month, then that's gonna and that's my goal. But you've had that taken away from you to see a sort of a more exposed version of life, I guess. Do you feel more deeply? Do you does everything feel heightened or brighter or more extreme or heightened since you experience this where I'm a googler so when I am going through something tough I love to like google to find out what um other people have gone through or what they um think and I know that a big part of bereavement um and especially a suicide is you get you can get very um caught up in wanting to again control stuff or, um, you know, you when you enter into a new relationship or like, let's say you have kids, um, you just kind of get very intense around whether or not something's going to happen to that person. And because you're just worried that it's going to happen again. And I have to say that is not how I am, um, maybe because I think I'm just quite aware of it. And I just don't really think that that's a way um, to live your life. So um, my personal perspective around a lot of that stuff is. Um, And what I tell myself actually as a mantra is the worst possible thing happened to me that could have happened to me in my understanding. And you know what? I recovered from it and I managed to rebuild my life. So basically I can do anything. So if I manage to rebuild my life after something like that, there is no amount of rubble that I can't use to rebuild my life again. So that's what I tell myself. Mm, I love that. But that is wonderful to hear for people that feel broken beyond help and there's a lot of people out there that do that just think well I'll never recover I'll never you know and I've had I've not lost anyone by you know who's taken their own life but I've certainly been in a place where I've thought nope not recovering from this no way out definitely stuck here forever and I think to hear somebody else say it and know it's possible is a gift in itself because you see other people around doing it that's inspiration you work out small ways of how they did it and then you start to just small like you say it's small changes in it and it's being kind to yourself and I think it's a strange British thing that we've got into that being kind to yourself is sort of either a luxury or a bit naff I think we view it as being selfish I mean Mm. Brits definitely view taking time for yourself or saying that you are not going to do something as being selfish it's like the classic it comes from the same well as saying sorry when you want yeah, to yeah. say excuse me yeah. i kind of need to move past you <laughs> we're and- so weird aren't we <laughs> we what's are wrong so, with us? we're so weird <laughs> i know a big part of this grieving for you and i guess searching or exploring life after 
Rob's passing is traveling and going to not only uh, New Zealand, where Rob was from, but getting out into the world and exploring cultures, people, families, life, love. Um, why do you have that burning desire and what has it brought to you? The biggest thing that I learned from traveling was that A, there are people who live completely differently and have a different sense of privilege that you might have. And I definitely recognize that within myself, for example, when I went to India. B, I also think that travel just reminds you that the world is not such a fixed place. Mm. So maybe because I am doing the travel in my late 30s as opposed to, you know, backpacking around somewhere in my 20s. But what I understood and what I took away from it was that there are lots of different people leading different types of lifestyles because they made a decision around what was right for them. So I think if you live in a city, you know, it's very easy to think that that is the only way to live. And for sure, there's this dissonance because you feel trapped by it to a certain extent. So, you know, you feel like you should want to escape it or you should be escaping it, but you can't because, you know, um, and then you'll tick off all of these reasons why to do with work, money, whatever, as to why you need to stay. And I think travel just reminds you that um, human beings are incredibly adaptable and also they have a lot to teach. Like I think just meeting people from different backgrounds to you and different cultures and understanding, it's not like someone sitting there lecturing you about what to do, which actually we do quite a lot, I think, in in cities, um, Mm. surprisingly, considering we're supposed to be, you know, places of learning and open-mindedness. But I just think looking at how other people lead their lives, I definitely took a lot of lessons from how... I could apply that to my own life. So the, like, the classic thing when I came back was everyone has asked me, oh my God, is it really traumatic coming back? And I was like, well, no, because I kind of like my life. Mm. But traveling has given me this broader sense of perspective than before I started the journey. So actually it was completely worth it. And I guess, you know, these charities like Calm and Mind are a lot more out there now. And they've always been doing this fantastic work. But I guess if you're not feeling like you can talk to someone you know, there are other ways of talking to people that you don't. And that might be maybe a little easier, one step removed from admitting to someone that you love or that you know that there's a problem. Saying just to an impartial person, I think I need a bit of help is just the most brilliant thing you could do if you are feeling completely at the depths of despair. Yeah, I mean, I felt like that. I'm, I know I'm not a man. I feel that it's incredibly hard for me to ask for help. I'm super proud. And there are probably, I would say, two people in this world when I'm struggling or when I'm feeling at a particular like frequency of being low that I will be able to force myself to send a message and to say, I really need your help. This is how I'm feeling. But like, that's literally like two people. And even then, it might still take me a full day to send that message. I I don't know why that is. I mean, I don't know whether it's pride because I feel that I should be able to just get over it. And I think that that's a huge part of it. But also, I I really don't want people to think of me as being weak. And that is part of the whole problem, right? Mm. And so when you then amplify that to men and the ideas and the preconceptions they have around feeling weak, I'm just like, oh my God, like we have to do something to be able to give permission around anyone Mm. like man woman child to be able to say things are really not okay with me and I'm really not fine and for them to be able to do that and not self-stigma against themselves that they they're just bad or they're weak because they they should cope they should be able to cope yeah why should you life is tough life can be really hard yeah yeah and I think you know how I don't know how we do it, but getting people to see that being vulnerable openly, that is the strength. That is the bit that's really strong. You know, I went to this incredible session um, with the charity Mind and it was terrifying. It was a group session and I sat in, as as everyone else did in the room, complete strangers, maybe 15 of us. And we did a workshop where we had to sort of write down thoughts and feelings. It was a poetry, spoken word thing. And then stand up and read. And I was thinking, nope, not doing this. Thank you. Not for me. But by the end of it, because I could see all these other people and, you know, men and women, probably an equal divide from all different parts of London, all different backgrounds, 
by about half an hour in, I felt so connected to these people and I didn't want to say a word. By the end, of course, I'm stood up like reading my frigging silly poem I've written, but it's that moment where you realize that that weakness is the strength that is the bit that is like holding you together with other people and when you recognize it in them you can then see it in yourself and you go oh my god this is okay this is absolutely fine and again it is part of that kind of Britishness to be very you know strong about things and tough and it's hopefully and possibly very slowly things are changing and the perception of that is changing and and that can only be a good thing for sure I mean I think that there are two things uh when we're talking about someone opening up about problems so number one for that person to understand and go into it with hope that they are talking about something that's that they feel vulnerable about and have kept hidden inside and more often than not if I was the other person on that converse on the side of that conversation I can't imagine a scenario in which a mate would talk to me about stuff and I would treat it with anything less than I'm going to give you a hug and don't worry and keep talking however there are people that aren't necessarily like that and Mm. who are so shocked by what they are being told or maybe they just don't know what to say that People just kind of instantly go for a default, oh, you know, don't worry, you'll get through it without offering any advice or help as to how that person's going to get through it. So I think, number one, you know, people should feel a bit more confident about opening up about what's going on. But number two, I think that if you are the other person on the end of that, just understand that you're probably not being told stuff because they want your advice. You're Mm. probably being told stuff because they just need someone to listen. Paula, I... I cannot thank you enough for A, traipsing over to my house today, but B, for being so beautifully open about this experience because I'm not sat here imagining that this is great fun for you to talk about the most traumatic thing in your life, but you're present and you're willing to do it and you're open and that is invaluable to so many people. So thank you. Thank you for having me, honey. Horner Bell. What a woman, and she's become a great friend too. You can read all about her experiences in her beautiful book, Chase the Rainbow. I absolutely loved it, and I know you will too. If you've been affected by anything in this podcast, please, please talk about it with someone. If that's tricky for you at the moment, you can always talk in confidence to the Samaritans at any time on 116123. That's 116123 in the UK. And we've details for other locations in our show notes. Next week, we'll meet YouTube superstar Zoe Sugg. People are a bit immune to empathy, I think, at this point. And not a lot of people remember that there's a person reading that at the other Mm. end. You can get that episode to appear magically on your phone first thing Monday morning when you subscribe. Just search on your podcast app of choice. And please, if you use Apple Podcasts, do leave us a review because that helps others find the show. Thanks to Porna and to the producer Matt Hill and Lucy Dearlove at Rethink Audio. I'll see you next week.